You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. Well, we are rounding the corner into our second month in the book of Leviticus. I pray that it's been an encouragement to you guys. I know that this has been a season of walking deeply in the Word of God, and I hope it continues to be that. As we lean into our passage this morning, I want to remind you of two things. First, the study guides that we have in the back. If you don't have one, we would love to get one into your hands. But those study guides are for you so that you can be walking through the Word of God and that as we gather together on Sunday, it's not simply my job to stand up here and tell you what you need to know about the Lord and His Word, but instead all of us having had our eyes on the word of the Lord, we can gather together as one family. And this can be far more a dinner table conversation than it is a lecture or a teaching. But the second thing also is that in the book of Leviticus, we're not hitting every passage. But that doesn't mean that every passage is not critically important and every word is not breathed out by God. It just simply means that we are walking through the book of Leviticus in a way where we are painting the big pictures but we want you to also have your eyes on the details. We want to we talk about the forest here, but allow you in the week to see the trees. And so we have been producing devotional videos that you can be walking through during the week. There were none this past week because we were in Leviticus 10 last week. We're in 11 this week. But this week there is a full slate of devotional videos. Again, at the end of your study guide for this passage, there's a little gray block. It's got all of the readings for this week. Walk through them, one perhaps by day, and check out the devotional videos so you can walk with us. As we began the sermon series in Leviticus, I got a chance to meet with a number of other pastors here in Mascouda. I get to lead our ministerial association And and we gather together and we pray for one another and we talk about what the Lord is doing throughout the entire community and how we can work together. And at the end of our time together, we'll typically just give a small update about where the Lord has our church and and then we'll, we'll close our time down. And as it got to me and I was talking about Mercy's Door, I just said, hey guys, be praying for us. We're getting ready to begin a sermon series in Leviticus. And there were audible noises and a few shudders that occurred as we went around the room. And then I had somebody I really love come up to me afterwards and said to me, uh, actually two pastors, one said, make sure you can find Christ in Leviticus. And I said, yes and amen. And the other one said, look in chapter 16. Now chapter 16, we're going to get to next Sunday. That's the day of atonement. And the, the, the fingerprints of Jesus are all over that passage. But there was something implied in that conversation that, quite honestly, I think most of us think as well when we approach the Old Testament, which is there are certain parts of the Old Testament where Jesus really is. The Day of Atonement, Jesus is there. David slaying Goliath, the better king slaying our great enemy, Jesus is there. But then there are other portions of Scripture where it just feels like, let's get through until we get to the point where Jesus shows up, or at least a foreshadow of Jesus appears. This passage, honestly, the next six chapters in Leviticus, are chapters where we kind of feel like, 
Listen, I can see Jesus in a lot of places in the Old Testament. But how in the world would I find him here? Now, if you haven't been with us, let me just catch you up very quickly on where we are in the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus immediately follows the story of the Exodus. God has freed his chosen people out of bondage. He's led them into the wilderness on their way to the promised land. And in the midst of that journey, the Lord God comes to the people of Israel and he makes a covenant with them, a relationship, a promise. He says, if you will obey my commands, then I will be your God. You will be my beloved people. And then he gives instructions to Moses, their leader, to build a tabernacle. This this great tent, a, a, a palace tent, if you will, where the very presence of God, his glory, will come to dwell At the end of the Exodus, the story of the Exodus, the tabernacle is built, it's commissioned. The presence of the Lord, His glory, falls upon the tabernacle, and then we read what ends up being a really big problem. We're told that as the glory of the Lord comes, Moses is not able to enter into the tabernacle. The best amongst the Israelites, the one that was called a very friend of God that we are told spoke to the Lord face to face on Mount Sinai cannot dwell closely, intimately in the presence of a holy God. And so we ask the question, who can, how can a sinful people possibly dwell with him? And Leviticus is the answer. The book of Leviticus starts with a number of sacrifices and offerings that are given to make atonement, to reconcile, to forgive, to bring back sinful humanity into the presence of God. And then we read at the end of those passages the institution of a priesthood because priests or mediators were needed to come and to be between the people of God and holy God. And then last week we we stood, we sat, we gazed, and we honestly shuddered as we saw the holiness of our God. As even the ordained priesthood, when they entered into the presence of God, uninvited and uncovered, they were consumed, even in a moment. And in the midst of that passage, in Leviticus chapter 10, the Lord, speaking to Aaron after his two sons, who were priests, have been consumed, have been killed, he gives Aaron and the remaining priests, this command in Leviticus 10, verse 10 and 11. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. You are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. Now, the book of Leviticus is a strange book. As I've heard people describe it, as I've talked to them about this sermon series, I've heard people tell me there's a lot of blood in that book. And there is. There are a lot of sensitive topics that are covered in this book. Slavery, marriage, sex, reproduction. But perhaps of all the strange and odd, seemingly out of place to us concepts in the book of Leviticus is the concept of clean and unclean. This language for us is not language that we use. It's not in our Christian vernacular. It doesn't seem to have a place in our culture, and it doesn't have a place in our church currently. And yet, 
Clearly, it has a large place in the Old Testament, including when Christ came, it continued to play a large role for the people of God. And so it begs the question for us who believe that all of this book is good, a gracious gift that the Lord has given to us, we ask the question when it comes to clean and unclean, God, what do we do with this? What would you have us to learn about this? And more specifically, what would you have us to learn about you? And so this morning, we are entering in, as I said, in chapter 11. From 11 to 15, what you have is a large string of laws that deal with this topic of those things that are clean and unclean and those things that make the people of God clean and unclean. And so what I want to do this morning is in asking the Lord for him to speak, I want to ask a few questions about this topic. We're going to ask those kind of basic questions we learned in in grammar school. What and how and why and what now? So here's the four questions we're going to ask this morning. First, we're going to ask the question, what? What does it mean to be clean and unclean? Second, how? How was something made unclean? Third, why? Why would the Lord distinguish between those things that are clean and unclean? And finally, what now? What does it mean for us now? What does it mean to be clean and unclean? How was something made clean, unclean? Why does the Lord separate thus? And what does it mean for us now? We ready? All right, let's jump into the first question. What does it mean to be clean or unclean? First, the word clean here in Hebrew that's repeated throughout chapter 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15, and honestly on through the Old Testament, is a Hebrew word that means in its origin to be bright, to be pure. When I bought my wife uh, a wedding ring, there were a couple of choices that I was able to make. One was the size of the diamond, which was not much of a choice for me, a grad school student at that point in time. But the second one was the purity of the gold that I bought for her. Every metal has a different level of purity, and it's associated with, with whether or not there is mixture, something else that is within the metal, or whether it is truly pure, clean, and bright. This is what the word clean means, and in the opposite of that, the word unclean means something that is impure, something that is defiled, something that's polluted. Right? Oftentimes, depending on the translation that you read, the word unclean and clean may not be used. It may be substituted for words like pure and impure or pure and defiled. So what is the Lord communicating and using these words, declaring things into these categories? Well, for most of us, when we think of words like unclean and clean, you think of something like I do, which is Clean the five minutes of my child after a bath, and unclean the 23 hours and 55 minutes, math is hard early on a Sunday morning, every other part of the day. 
right? We, we hear those words and we, we go to something that is hygienic or unhygienic. Hopefully all of you in this room, hygienic, and all of the people upstairs being taught Sunday school class, unhygienic. But that's not what the Lord is primarily getting at. Right? It conjures up maybe an image that I immediately think of when I think of clean and unclean in those ways. I think of when Jesus met the leper outside of the town, these lepers with these skin diseases that were segmented away from society. When they would come near to someone because they were potentially contagious, they would have to cover their head and they would have to declare loudly for all to hear, unclean, unclean. I think this is what we oftentimes think of when we hear clean and unclean. Or perhaps when we hear clean and unclean, we think morally clean or morally dirty. And certainly there are some times where those things that are moral in nature are declared clean and unclean, but this too is not the primary use of the words clean and unclean. Clean and unclean generally are tied back to what we said the very purpose of the book of Leviticus is, which is to teach us about the presence of God and how people can dwell in His midst. Clean and unclean are ceremonial terms primarily, meaning they are categories that are tied to the ceremonies of Israel. They're tied to the public worship of Israel at the tabernacle and eventually the temple. So to be clean means that you are able to participate, to be in the presence of God with the congregation of Israel as they worship at the tabernacle or temple. And to be unclean means that you are restricted from joining the congregation. You are not able to join them in the presence of God before the tabernacle for the sacrifices or the feasts and other worship services. Now getting our arms around the ceremonial nature of this term clean and unclean, understanding that it relates to the worship of Israel becomes critically important. Because in this passage, as we deal with food, and even more so as we deal with things like illness and disease, bodily discharges, reproduction, childbirth, you're going to come to things as they are declared clean and unclean, oftentimes with an inherently sinful or negative connotation. But we'll see over the next several days, everyone throughout their life, will be ceremonially clean at one time or another. And the word does not necessarily carry a connotation that is negative, but instead is the Lord doing what He's doing in all of Leviticus, which is actually inviting a sinful people into His presence. This is what it means for something to be clean or unclean. But that leads us to the next question, which was, How in the world does something become clean or unclean? Leviticus 11, as we read all the way through it, is essentially an ordering of creatures for Israel to determine which of them are clean and therefore they can eat, and which of them are unclean and therefore they may not eat. 
Now the Lord, as he's delineating these things, uses a number of different characteristics of animals in order to divide them. Now here's a quick run through. We, we don't have a ton of kids. And if you're a, a kid in here, I'm going to ask you to wait because you're going to know this better than your parents. So I'm looking at a few of you. So just wait. I know you know the answer. Parents, I need you to concentrate and reach all the way back into those days where you had to actually sit and learn things. I'm assuming you don't do that at work now. And remember when you learned what made a mammal a mammal. What are the things that you remember that make a mammal a mammal? Anyone? Not yet. What we got? Just shout it out. Let's be crazy. Okay. Hair, I heard. Warm blood. Excellent. What was that? They nurse their young. Live birth. You guys are good. Fantastic, okay? I'm really very semi-proud of you all in your nature. You guys did a great job. Yeah, now, now here's what's funny. Who decided that those were the characteristics that made a mammal a mammal? Somebody did. Somebody at some point in time, somebody else looked at and said, you seem smart enough. You tell us what belongs in this category. Right? It's not something that was from the beginning, all things were considered mammals or not mammals. We chose categories and we divided animals based on characteristics that we chose. The Lord does the exact same thing here in Leviticus chapter 11. He uses a number of categories to divide different types of animals, and based on those divisions, he declares some to be clean and worthy to be eaten, and he declares other to be unclean and therefore unedible. Look at verses 1 through 7 of this passage as the Lord declares land, large land animals that Israel can and cannot eat. He uses two physical characteristics. One, an outward appearance characteristic, whether or not they have cloven or hooved feet, and a characteristic of digestion, whether or not they quote-unquote chew the cud or ruminate. He does the same thing. With animals in the sea, those that have fish and fin, clean. Those that do not are unclean. He does the same for insects. Those that have jointed legs and that hop on the ground are clean. Those that do not are unclean. He does the same for swarming creatures and small land animals. Those that crawl along the ground are all unclean. The Lord makes division, and based on these divisions, He declares things clean and unclean. Now, that leaves us the question, how do those divisions make something clean and unclean? One of my favorite parts this week of of preparing to preach was reading different scholars and their attempts to figure out the Lord. And so some scholars will suggest that clean and unclean actually was, was far more in the vein of hygiene than we would give it credit for. That animals that lived a clean lifestyle were clean, and those that lived an unclean lifestyle were unclean. And of course, the big example here is a pig. The Lord forbid bacon. And pigs were unclean animals. They lived in ways that were physically 
unhygienic. The problem is that there were a lot of other animals that were seemingly clean in how they lived, but the Lord declared them unclean, and quite the opposite. There were other animals that were clean in regards to being able to be eaten that lived an unclean lifestyle. Okay, so that one doesn't work, so let's move on to the next one. Others have suggested that divisions are based off of the potential for viruses or infections or diseases coming from certain animals or practices. But the problem is, last time I checked, as much as I love a medium-rare hamburger, if I don't cook it well enough, there's this lovely little thing called E. coli that doesn't tend to agree with me. There are lots of instances where those things declared clean still have the ability to spread disease, and those things declared unclean seem to have very little to do with it. Finally, some of the restrictions we talked about last week have to deal with their association with death. But these only make up a small portion of what the Lord declares clean and unclean. So let me ask the question again. How was something made clean and unclean? Are you ready for the answer? You know what it is. Thus saith the Lord. I remember when I was growing up, actually I remember most distinctly in my early 20s until I had children, I was convinced that all of my bad decisions that occurred in my teenage years and young adulthood, which there were many, was primarily a result because my parents told me no about things and didn't do a good enough job explaining why it was a no. I remember saying to myself and to other people, Lord, help me, Mom and Dad, forgive me. If they just would have explained why I shouldn't be doing these things, I would have bought in. I would have understood and obeyed. I have five children now. I've learned two things. One, oftentimes it doesn't matter how much I try, I can't make them understand. And two, oftentimes it makes no sense whether or not they get it or not, they're going to do it anyways. Thus saith the Lord. We don't like that answer. I don't like that answer when I come to Scripture. But when the Lord makes delineations and divisions, when He declares certain things clean and other things unclean, He does not always give us an answer. And church, let me tell you something. That, like everything else in the book of Leviticus and all of Scripture, is a gift. I once was reading a book called The Hiding Place about a woman, Corrie Ten Boom, who was a woman... Uh, in the Netherlands during World War II, her and her family hid a number of Jews from the Nazis and were eventually arrested, deported, tortured, and Corey barely made it through the war, though none of the rest of her family did. She tells a story early on about her upbringing with her dad, who was an amazing, loving, attentive, and gracious man of God. And she tells a story about how they were traveling one time towards the train, and as a child, she had overheard a conversation with some other adults about marriage and sex. And so she began to ask her dad questions. She was still quite young, and her dad said to her, not yet. 
And she said, Dad, why can't you tell me? And he said, it's not that I can't tell you. He said, it's not time yet. And he asked her this question. He said, when we go to the train and we pack to go on a journey together, and the baggage in your backpack is heavy, who carries it for you? And she says, you do. And he said, this is the same way. You do not yet need to carry this burden, so I will carry it for you. And the Lord is a good Father. And so when He does not give to us the details, the explanations, it is right for us to assume that the Lord, who is a good Father, carries burdens that He does not intend for us to carry. But just because we don't have a complete explanation of why in every matter and case the Lord declares something clean or unclean, there is still an answer to the question of why does the Lord choose to divide things as clean and unclean? Or perhaps another way of asking it is, what is the Lord doing and how does this, like everything else, fit into His story of redemption. So here's where I want to spend the bulk of our time. Why does the Lord declare some things clean and other things unclean? If you've been here long enough, you know that we talk about Holy Scripture within the realm of one complete story of redemption. A story that can be divided, if you will, into four parts. The perfection of creation, the tragedy of fall and rebellion and the impact of sin on the earth, the coming redemption that culminates in Jesus, and the restoration of all things that we still wait for. This is the the narrative arc, if you will, of the story of redemption, but if you start to kind of categorize where each of those segments are in Scripture, you have the perfection of creation, which only lasts two chapters in Genesis. You have the story of the fall, which takes one chapter. And then there's a large gap until Jesus comes on the scene in the Gospel of Matthew when redemption actually culminates. And so we ask the question, what is the Lord doing from Genesis chapter 4 all the way to Matthew chapter 1? And the answer is that in that place, the Lord begins to give picture after picture of Him recreating what has fallen, recreating that that has been lost. Or maybe to put it another way, what we see the Lord doing time and time again is giving humanity another chance to accept His offer that Adam and Eve had rejected in the garden. And this is what the Lord is doing here in Leviticus as He introduces that which is clean and unclean. This is a retelling of the creation account. It's a picture again of the Lord and who we were intended to be with Him. So from these we get a sense of why clean and unclean. So now that I've given you four questions, I'm going to give you three sub-points of the third question. 
Everybody follow that? No, that's all right. Three reasons, and here's what I want you to have. These three reasons, so write these down if you've written nothing else down. When you think of clean and unclean, I want you to think of these three things. Lordship, lament, and distinction. Say them again. Lordship, lament, and distinction. Start with lordship. In Genesis 2, the, the, the second creation account story, when the Lord creates humanity, He places them in the Garden of Eden, this place of perfection. There's no sin, and yet, in perfection, where there is no sin, the Lord sees fit in Genesis chapter 2 to give Adam and Eve a rule. And what's the rule? He tells them what they may eat and what they may not eat. He says, all of the trees except for the one in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall eat. But you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And on the day that you do, you shall surely die. Now, isn't this an odd thing that coming off of the beauty and perfection of creation, this poetry that is told in Genesis 1 and chapter 2, what is seemingly interjected into the midst of it is a rule. Right? It's a law. It's a command. Right? Nobody gets a birthday card and expects along the well, with it, well wishes and the beautiful language to also have just a nice little rule or command submitted into there. And yet the Lord does that. And there's no discussion of why the Lord gives this rule. Do you notice that? Like, again, my 19, 21, 23, maybe 36-year-old self would say, God, come on, at least tell them why. If you would have done a better job explaining to them why they shouldn't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then maybe they, shouldn't, they wouldn't have done it. But the Lord is doing something more than just trying to keep them from eating from a tree. What He's doing is offering them something beautiful. It's an invitation to see Him not just as wonderful Creator, but also as Lord. To see Him as ruler. To love and follow Him. To trust that wherever He leads and wherever He prohibits, he does so because He is good. And the Lord is doing that here. Eventually, Adam and Eve reject the Lordship of God. They choose to eat which He has said not to eat. And here in Leviticus, the Lord gives humanity, His chosen people, another opportunity to hear from Him saying, This you shall eat. And this you shall not. And simply to buy into the truth that He is a good God. Worthy of our trust and adoration. Worthy for us to follow. This is Lordship. Can I say something that's not going to feel very good? We hate Lordship. It is the, the, the clinging nature of the fall of our forefather, Adam. We hate it. We hate lordship. We hate submission. We hate authority. You know what we like? We, we like autonomy. 
We like freedom. We like to be the captain of our own ship. But can I tell you what we do with the ship when we captain it? We run it into the ground, we burn it, and we sink it to the bottom. If you don't believe me, read Genesis chapter 4 and 5 and 6. I could go on the entire time. I could just make up the rest of the sermon just counting. And so and so lived. And then what did they do? They died. And then so and so lived. And then what did they do? They died. Humanity does not get better when the lordship of God is rejected. It gets infinitely, indescribably worse. And so here the Lord offers, come back, experience the good ship of my lordship. Experience who I am. Listen to these words from the psalmist in Psalm 16. This is one of my favorite passages. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You, Lord, hold my lot. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night, He instructs my heart. I have set the Lord always before me because He is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the paths of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We are dust creatures as pastor brett read and the lord gives us beloved dust rest and confidence and security in his lordship clean and unclean he gives to us as an invitation to enter into his lordship but also into lament in creation again the lord takes adam and eve he places them in the midst of perfection to work and keep the garden, to be fruitful and to multiply. There was peace, shalom, wholeness, flourishing for all of humanity individually, for humanity in relationship, and for the entire world around them. There was, this is good. And then sin and the fall enters into the world. And what was good is replaced by evil. What was flourishing is replaced by destruction. What was life is replaced by death. And now when the Lord begins to declare some things as clean and others that are unclean, there is a a really clear thread around anything that deals with the effects of the fall. Those things are declared unclean, and those that come in contact with them are declared unclean. Carnivorous animals, birds of prey, are declared unclean. The dead bodies of all animals are declared unclean. Illness is declared unclean. Skin diseases are declared unclean and make others that come in contact with it unclean. Death 
and dealing with dead bodies makes people unclean. Pregnancy, bodily fluids, menstruation even, all that was affected by the curse of the fall, including the bringing forth of children or the failure to do so, is declared unclean. Why? Well, it's as if in these cases, when the Lord declares things unclean, and when men and women, because they are unclean, have to be by themselves apart from the congregation for a period of time, it's as if the Lord is creating space for them to sit and to recognize the fallen nature of the world around them. That after the pain of childbirth that sometimes would lead to new life and others would not, a mother with her child for a period of time would have space to sit and to recognize that even this miracle has been tainted by the fall. That as one is mourning death of a loved one, and they come in contact with them, or they grieve over them and identify with them, they are unclean, creating space to sit and lament over the fall. The Lord gives us this again and again as an opportunity to step back and be aware of the world that we live in, which is not a world that apart from Christ is heading towards glory or a utopia but is a dead and dying world. And the Lord offers Israel and His people to see that. Finally, distinction. First, lordship, then lament, then distinction. In the garden, Adam and Eve, we are told, even in their nakedness reflected the glory of God. They were His perfect image bearers, reflecting His glory his goodness and grace, and they were told to bring that into all the world. But when they left Eden after the fall, they were covered, physically covered and covered in their shame. And from that point forward, man and woman often reflected far more the serpent that tempted them than the glorious God that created them. But the Lord promises us through Abram in Genesis 12, that he will one day again have a people for himself. He will be their God and he will be, they will be his people. They will reflect his image and goodness and through them they will be a blessing to all the world. And so even here in Leviticus, as it looks like the Lord begins to make arbitrary rules and regulations, what he is doing is helping to give physical distinction. They are not distinct, and then the Lord chooses them to be His people. He takes them as His people, and then He makes them distinct. Distinct in their diet. Distinct in their practices. Distinct in their interactions with each other, and in their interactions with other peoples. He makes them distinct, so that the world would know that they are his. Now hear this. Distinction is not about status primarily. 
Distinction is not primarily about one people being better than another people. Distinction ultimately is about love. Because love distinguishes. It's not general. It's specific. Think for a second if you're a parent or if you're not a parent, if you have ever been a child, which should capture all of you. Think for a moment about the relationship between a child and a parent. My child bears my name. When he is called by other people, when he is addressed by other people, both he and they are reminded that he is mine. My child looks like me. And that doesn't just mean biologically, though we make copycats of apparently one strand of DNA. But regardless of whether or not a child physically looks like you, if they are yours and live with you, they will begin to reflect you. They will dress similar to you, though they will never admit it. They will look like you. They will live with you, spend time with you. Their schedule will reflect your schedule. Their priorities will reflect your priorities. They will eat the food that you eat or the food that you give to them. And in my case, my kids will be picky eaters like their father is a picky eater. Sorry, Mom. Right? Our, our kids reflect us because they are, they are ours. They are distinct, and the Lord does the same for us. He gives us rules and divisions to set Israel apart. Not primarily set them apart from the world, but set them apart for Him. This is why the Lord distinguishes between clean and unclean. So here's the big final wrap-up question. What does it mean for us now? The big question is, do we still fall under these laws? And perhaps secondarily to that, do these distinctions still matter? The answer is no and yes. First, no. Paul and the New Testament make clear that we are not any longer under the Mosaic law. That Christ came to fulfill the law for us. In the book of Galatians in chapter 3, Paul calls the law a guardian. A guardian who was with us until Christ came, but as Christ came and faith with Him, we no longer needed a guardian and therefore we are no longer under the law. This is a big discussion, and I'd love if you have questions to have it more. But that does not mean we are not just under some of the law. It doesn't mean that we are freed from the ceremonial law, but still are under other parts of the law. We have been utterly freed from the law, and now have been freed into a new law, the law of Christ. That we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourself. 
But it's clear, we are not under the law in this specifically. Right? Jesus himself declares all food clean. The Lord gives Peter a vision at which point in time he tells them, those that he has created, do not call them as common. All foods clean. But it's not just that the law passes away because it no longer matters. The law passed away because it couldn't do what the Lord was doing. The law, the distinctions could not by themselves make Israel love the lordship of God. It could not make them truly lament the fall. And it could not permanently truly make them distinct. So the question becomes, does the Lord just simply abandon recreation? Does he abandon redemption? Does he abandon the hope that he would have a people that would lovingly come under his lordship, that would understand the depths of the fall and cling to redemption, and that would be a distinct people for him for all eternity? And of course, the answer, by God's grace, is no, he didn't abandon it. Hear this in Ezekiel 36. The Lord says this, I will sprinkle my people with clean water, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. From all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. The Lord identifies for us that the law could not do it, but the spirit of Christ Jesus which he has given us does it is the spirit that convicts us jeremiah tells us that he writes his law now on our heart hear this church you were once predisposed to rebellion against the lord but at your core now for those in christ indwelled by the spirit your spirit cries out for lordship for rest under the rule and reign of God, for confidence in who He is, to follow Him because you know in your depths of your soul as the Spirit resides in you that He is good. And it's the Spirit that gives us the heart of Christ, the heart of the One who wept over the broken, who wept over the sick and dying who entered into the suffering and fall of humanity and has redeemed us from it. And it's the Spirit of Christ Jesus that testifies with ours that He is our Abba, our Father, that we are His distinct, loved, and always will be being conformed into His image. Church, I know that this is a lot. But it's something we have to grasp as we look at the words of God. When we come upon these areas where we don't understand, we have to look to Him and what He's doing because I promise you, in something as strange and foreign to us as things being declared clean and unclean, as arbitrary as the rules seem to be, as unfair as we want to discount things, I want you to hear this. These two are the good gifts of a God who has not only created us, but has He Himself come 
for our redemption. And so we see them as just that, as drawing us closer to Him, as these reflecting the heart of our God, even in these laws of Leviticus. Pray with me, church.